blackness hasn't always been held as the apex of beauty. So as a result, to combat that, you need certain words and certain language once again. And that language when I was young was black is beautiful. Who and what inspires you to get back up every single time you do receive abuse, you do receive hatred, you do receive nastiness? Was Winston Churchill racist? The thing that I would say about racism, which is really interesting, is that it evolves. And this is why we need to keep learning about it. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Getting Back Up with me, Anthony Ogogo. Today's episode is a really special one, one of my favorite ones I've done so far. I've got Kane Kawasaki on the podcast. Kane is a legend, such a, such a, such nice guy, extremely talented, extremely intelligent, extremely charismatic. Kane Kawasaki is a cultural commentator. He's a TED talker. He teaches people all around the world about black British history and black global history. He is so funny. So smart, so intelligent. I loved talking to Kane. This podcast is for everybody. Doesn't matter if you're black, if you're white, please listen to this podcast and learn from this guy. Not just what he talks about, his subject matter, which is so important, by the way. Learn from him and be inspired by him. He's a guy that gave up a really good, honest job as a, as a high school teacher. He gave all up to go into the world of TikTok and Instagram and social media, and he's made a huge success of it. So please, get ready for this podcast, listen up, learn from um, myself, before I go into the podcast, I'm myself, a 34-year-old mixed-race man. He taught me so much what it is about being mixed or being black or being an ethnic person in this country. So, without further ado, listen to it, get ready to it, enjoy it, be inspired by it. Let's get stuck in. Kane, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today, mate. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. You're more than welcome. So on this podcast, I'm going to ask you a lot of questions. I'm going to, we might get deep. I have no idea where we're going to go with this conversation. I'm really interested by this. I'm really excited about talking to you today. But the most important question I'm going to ask you is this. How the bloody hell are you? Good question, especially a good first question. Um, I'm grounded. Um, I'm rooted. I'm thankful. Um, I'm appreciative. The weather could be nicer in London at the moment. Um, but besides that, I am very blessed. Those who don't know who you are, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, sure. So my name is Kane. I'm often confused with Kanye, so I always have to throw that out there. K-A- it's, got a, it's got a cheeky Y, is it? Cheeky yeah, Y in the middle. It's got a cheeky Y in there. And growing up, I never got called Kanye ever before. And then, of course, the rapper came out and I was called Kanye from that moment onwards. Uh, so my name is Kane Kawasaki. I'm born and raised in London, southeast London, Peckham, to be precise. And uh, what I do now on my day-to-day is um, I... I'm a content creator with a specialism in UK black history. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Ogogo Fitness. Ogogo Fitness is my brand new fitness app I'll be launching really, really soon. I've created this app so I truly want to help people. I believe everybody 
should have the right to exercise and be fit and be healthy. I brought this to the world to promote physical health and mental health. I've designed 60 preset seven minute workouts ranging in difficulty from round one, which is pretty easy to round 12, which is really, really challenging. As well as that, I've got my personal workout builder. I've created 50 different exercises and you have the choice to create your own playlist from the 50 different workouts, which gives you an option of over 80 million combinations of workouts. So from your GoGo Fitness app, you can literally choose for millions and millions and millions of workouts personalized for you and what you're training for. So head over to agogofitness.com, register your interest, and be the first to know when Agogo Fitness is launching. I'm equally as in fascinated by what you do and you as a person, because we've all got a story and I want to know your story and know why you do the great work that you do. So if you don't mind, let's go, let's go back to Peckham. Um, you growing up as a kid, what was that like? Yeah, growing up in a kid, uh, as a kid, sorry, Peckham had a reputation um, that I'm sure many are aware of in the noughties and the 90s. Uh, it had a reputation of being a not so desirable place at that time. If you look at the media uh, around that time, it was very much Damalola Taylor, uh, the young man who unfortunately um, lost his life um, innocently lost his life. And that was kind of the face of Peckham for a very, very long time. Um, and I grew up in and amongst that. Um, so I went to school in Peckham. My mum was born and raised in Peckham. She went to school in Peckham. <laughs> My grandparents came to Peckham um, as a part of the Windrush generation for a more tolerant area. And it's interesting because we look at Peckham now as, you know, an area that's very racially diverse. But when my grandparents came, it very much still had that spillover from Millwall and Bermondsey and racial tensions and things of that nature. So my mom grew up in that environment. So she had a quote unquote tough upbringing. Um, and then fast forward, I was growing up. Um, in Peckham, you know, pounding the same streets that my mum and my grandparents pounded. Uh, so I kind of had this feeling that I was kind of like a Peckham thoroughbred, if that makes sense. Like, I, like these were my streets. These were my family streets. Um, and I always loved education. Um, I excelled at school. I was a quote unquote good boy. Um, but where does a good boy sit in a quote unquote bad area? Where does he sit? I, and, and that's the thing. I think for a minute I had to kind of find my foot in so initially I wanted to be like the kids who are bad um, okay. and kind of side with them and do things that they were doing what and kind then, of things can you go into detail or what kind of things to be a a bad kid? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, I would class that, especially now with my, my teaching background many years later, which we can get into, I would class a quote-unquote bad kid as bullying, essentially. Okay. Um, and that's something that I partook in. And at that time, it was very much either you were, it was like there were two options. You were either the victim or the victimizer, uh, especially around that Damalola Taylor, as I mentioned. It was very much either you were, you know, someone that got picked on or someone that, you know, picked on others. Um, and I chose at that time to pick on others in order to make sure that I wasn't picked on. For, I guess, with what, tribal acceptance? You wanted to, you wanted to fit in? Yeah, exactly that. You know, you wanna, I went to an all-boys school. Um, it was predominantly Nigerian, um, predominantly black. 
um, the white kids that were there were like this, like I mentioned, the spillover from South Bermondsey and Millwall. So it was, it almost felt like, although it, it was very segregated. So I think that I had a very, my upbringing almost like was a microcosm. So, you know, my experience was very black, very Nigerian and very Peckham. Um, and as a result, it's like, where does a Caribbean kid fit in, in the, in the midst of all of that? Um, and yeah, I would very much say it was, you know, adapting to my environment and my surroundings. Your, your um, heritage, you said Caribbean? Yes. Your grandparents came over from the, from the wind, in the Windrush generation? Yes. What was that, what, 50s? Yeah, so I'm not actually sure of the exact time, but I know that my mum um, my and her sister were born in the 60s, uh, mid to late 60s. Mm-hmm. And um, my grandfather came over from Jamaica, uh, met my grandmother here. My grandmother's from Britain um, and they originally met in Rotherham. That was the first black guy she had ever seen in her whole entire life. Rotherham? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you're, so, you're, so you're, your grandmother's white? Yeah, so I'm I'm racially, although obviously I'm black presenting, um, I've got grandparents of every single heritage. So I've got two black grandparents, one Asian Jamaican grandparent and one white British uh, grandparent as well. So, nice, man. That's a great mix. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, but, and also as well, I feel like that gives me a scope of just identity and just just a, a different lens and perspective on things. Um, having, having a multi cultural uh, family in terms of your grandparents, do you feel like you have an identity or you did not have an identity being from such a mix, a blend? Yeah, unfortunately, rightly or wrongly, obviously we always have to take into the context of the time. Um, when I w- when my mum was growing up, her, her mum told her that she was black. Um, and we, like I said, context is very important. Like I said, she was born in the mid to late 60s. The term mixed race didn't come about until the 90s. So as a result, she classed herself as black and she had a black experience. And if you ask her now, she would class herself as a black woman. As a result, growing up myself, um, I know that my experience has been that of a black man, um, regardless of you know the kind of um, ancestry that I have. I know that I've had a very black experience. I know that when I walk into the room, I hear people's assumptions, you know, they're like, are you Trinidadian? Are you Jamaican? Are you Ethiopian? Are you East African? Very rarely do I get, oh, are you mixed race? Matter of fact, I've never had that ever before in my life. Interesting. I mean, I've had, Kane, how, how old do you, do you mind me asking so I can work out? Yeah, 30s, um, early 30s. Nice. Yeah. Okay, so I'm similar, similar age to me. So I, I grew up... Um, in a small town in East Anglia, Lowestoft. Uh, it's a very, very, very white town. In my school, there was me and my sisters and another black family, say family, one man, Nathan Bugs. He was, uh, his mum was Nigerian descent, his dad was Indian. And him and us, that's what it was. So I'm, I'm mixed. I've always, my dad was not in the picture. Uh, my mum raised me and my four sisters on her own, uh, a white woman. Her, her, her parents helped my grandparents to uh, a white man, white, white, white woman, raise, helped raise us. So I've had quite a white upbringing. However, uh, you mentioned very like eloquently, I, every single room I walked into from being a kid, I wasn't the white kid, I was the black kid. And that's how people look at me. So it's funny, I mean, it's like, then I started traveling around the country coming to Crystal Palace not too far from Peckham um, to be England England boxing training when I was uh, when I was 14 and then I was like I remember one day in particular I turned up 
and my mum, we'd just, England had just won the, the Rugby World Cup. And I come from a small town. I've barely left lower stuff. I come from a really small town, really naive upbringing. And we just won the, won the Rugby World Cup. And my mum bought me like a fake, a snide, <laughs> like England rugby jersey. About, five, about 12 quid probably uh, from the market. And I wore it and we just won the World Cup. And I didn't really care for rugby that much, but we just won the World Cup. I went to England training and... Uh, there's some, the white lads are sitting in and the, and the black lads are sitting together. So I made a beeline to the to the black lads and <laughs> I turned up and one of them looked at me and said, all right, I said, all right. He said, uh, do you like rugby? I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> he went, oh, laughed. And then they will turn their back on me. I was like, oh, this is weird. So I went back to the white boys, hang out with him. And something similar happened. And I was like, fuck, I don't fit in anywhere. I don't know, I don't know where, I, where do I belong? Like, what group do I belong to? And I've always struggled with this, with this. I haven't struggled, that's a lie. When I was a young man, when I was a kid, I, I kind of struggled a bit with a lack of identity. Am I, am I black? I'm, I'm, I'm black appearing as you, but I'm not quite black enough for the black lads. I'm, I'm definitely not white like the white lads. Like, where do I sit? Like, where do I fit in? And then I thought, I don't fit in. I don't want to fit in. I'm always going to stand out. I was born to stand out. I think we were all born to stand out. And I thought, okay, watch me. Watch me stand out. And I think one of the many reasons that excel made me want to excel in my life, I've always wanted to stand out and excel. So it's interesting you talk about identity. Um, but like I said, you grew up in a school uh, in an area where there's, there's a large black population, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So even the other day, I went to um, South London Gallery and there's an exhibition called Lagos to Peckham. And it says that there's 15,000 uh, Nigerian residents within Peckham alone, which, you know, and it's the largest community of Nigerians outside of Nigeria, um, well, at least in the UK. So it's, um, you know, like I said, it's predominantly, predominantly a black experience, um, which fast forward has made me who I am. Um, and it prov- provided a, a solid foundation to explore just global history, not even black history, but just global history. I presume that's obviously from your teaching history. Have you had, have you had teacher, have you ever been taught how to public speak or is it just natural to you? Do you know, it's really interesting. I, you know, in primary school, when they have that situation where it's like, oh, what do you want to be when you're older? I, I literally said at the age of four, and my mum can verify this, I said literally either a teacher or a preacher. Now, a preacher is a funny one because we did not attend church. So no idea where that came from, how that permeated into my mind and then flowed out of my mouth. No idea. But when you think about those two professions, they're obviously public speaking um, and they're a form of educating. Um, And I would say that, you know, the first teaching job I ever had was in Peckham. And like I said, at that time, Peckham had a reputation. And, you know, you've got to get those kids respect and attention so, you know, that was very much my training ground. That was my battlefield because, you know, you've got these kids in front of you who statistically, you know, some of them are going to fail. But, you know, yeah. I knew that my mission was to get them engaged in education. Like similarly, similarly with me, I remember growing up, I never used to like reading. And then I had a Jamaican teacher as my English teacher. And she was just like, if you don't like reading, she's like, it's because you haven't found the right book yet. So then she started, <laughs> she gave me, you know, she like, not reading was just not an option. 
And, yeah. you know, she then presented me with, because beforehand I was reading, you know, the Harry Potters and the Goosebumps and all those kind of books. And <laughs> the Goosebumps, oh, Goosebumps. Goosebumps. <laughs> and, you know, they were like, okay, but I was like a kid that like got afraid quite easily. So I knew that wasn't really for me. Do you know what I mean? You know, like when you're in the house by yourself and like... You know, back then when kids could be left in the house by themselves and it wasn't necessarily like a big thing as long as the door yeah. was locked and you didn't answer the door and you didn't answer the phone. So could you imagine reading Goosebumps in and amongst all of that? Like it just didn't work. Um, so I told my teacher, was like, so tell me about you. And I was just like, okay. I said, I journal every day. I, I write in my diary every single day. Um, and I only write positive things in my diary every single day. And then she was just like, okay, try reading The Colour Purple because it's almost like, a story where the person journals their feelings to God. So I was like, okay, cool. Open the first page. And the first page was Dear God. And then it had, you know, Alice Walker, the, the author, was through her character, Celie, was essentially writing how she felt. And then I was just like, oh, okay, this is, I see myself represented in this book. Um, and as a result, I started to read. So I took on that same practice when I went to this, when I started teaching, I was just like, for many people, and this is a theory because I'm also a cultural theorist. And when you think about theorists, they tend not to exist anymore within the UK, especially black theorists. Whereas if you go back 10, 20, 30 years ago, there were prevalence. There were, you know, there were people that were writing about the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, but not so much now. So as a cultural theorist, there's one theory called cat's theory, which means that you engage in something because you see yourself reflected in it. Um, and another part of that theory is diversion, escape. So you may watch The Simpsons, you know, just to tune off. You may watch The Kardashians just to tune off, just to escape from your everyday life. But the other part of that theory is personal identity, where you need to see yourself reflected. And with that Alice Walker book, I saw myself reflected. And similarly, when I started teaching, I made sure that my resources reflected the kids that I was teaching in order for them to be able to engage. You, you grew up in Peckham. Um, why was it important to come back to Peckham and teach in Peckham? Yeah, that was always a part of my mission. Um, and when I saw that there was a job going literally walking distance from my mum's house at the time, I was like, I'm going to get that job because I very much believe in speaking things out into existence and speaking positivity out there. So I was like, that's going to be my job. Then on top of it, the wage was the highest out of everyone else in my class. So I was just like, that's definitely going to be my job. And then I saw the classroom and the classroom had like air conditioning and it was modern and it had like a big TV screen. I was like, this is definitely going to be my job. So then I, I just knew that, that that's where I needed to start. And that's essentially it was my part of my, it, it was part and parcel of making sure that I, I give back. One thing that I'm very big on is, is giving back. Um, and I knew that through me being there, some of the young men would see themselves reflected and would almost in some circumstances listen to me more because I've lived that experience. So if I can say, you know, I was from Peckham, I went to that school down the road and I achieved this and this and this, you can do it too. 100%. You, um, what university did you go to? Yeah, I went Ravensbourne. It's by the O2, like literally right by the O2. Um, oh, you, you've always been selfish. You've always stayed. You always stayed. Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, do you know, with university, I was like, bun that. When everyone was like all going outside of London and doing all of this, I was like, listen, 
all the hot girls are in London, you know, I want to stay at mum's, save up as much money as I can. I want to whip around in my Peugeot 106 at the time. It was ruby red with black tints. I was just like, yo, I just want to get my degree as fast as I can and then get back to it. And literally, I graduated a year early. So I graduated within two years rather than three. Wow. Clever boy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I literally just put my head down and I've always had this complex of, and you, you've probably heard this as well, that because you're black, you have to work 10 times as hard. And I very much carried that with me uh, to where when I was in my university class in teaching and degrees and stuff, I would know that on that assignment, I would get the top of the class. And if the teachers, you know, were reading out from top to bottom or were handing out or saying who the top in the class was, I was like, my name needs to be on that list. Was it instilled at you within that home to to work hard, education? Yeah, especially at that time. I know things have changed now, um, but at that time, like a degree was the thing, um, especially in my family. No one had um, acquired a degree as of yet. So it was very much like if you had a degree, you and your family had made it. It was very much like a social status. It almost feels like that was a dream for them that they can attain, but they wanted to make sure that their generations, their descendants, i.e. me, attained. My dad, I was on the, uh, the England England boxing squad for a long, long time, then the GB boxing squad. And I wouldn't, I didn't have much to do with my dad growing up, but I'd often see him, he'd come to Crystal Palace to say hello to me or drive me to Liverpool Street to get a train home. And then um, it's probably about a 40 minute drive from Crystal Palace to Liverpool Street on a Sunday with no traffic. And no matter, I've just been to European Championships, won a medal. The Junior Olympics won the gold medal. The this medal, the that medal. The World Championships won a gold medal. And he, and he said, says, yeah. And he says to me, education. Yeah. Education, my boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he'd always say to me, he'd say, yeah, I was going to do a really bad um, accent then, but <laughs> <laughs> that's what it all stutters about. I, I stopped myself. And he said, he'd say to me, he'd say, look at Vladimir Klitschko. Look at Vitaly Klitschko. They both got PhDs. They both had PhDs, but and the world champion boxers. He said, that's true success. Like, that's true success. And I was like, Dad, it's really hard being a boxer. It's really hard. You get punched in the head a lot. Always got a headache. Always half concussed. I haven't got the energy to train my ass off to get to the Olympic Games and to do a degree. I just can't. I, I couldn't do it. Um, but it's just funny, isn't it? What, like you said, like what success is. Success, obviously, is subjective to the person. And no matter how well I did in my sport, he wasn't that impressed. If I rang him as an eight-year-old, Dad, I got, I got 100% of my spelling test. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, the most yeah, amazing yeah. thing in the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it, 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 you said your dad's Nigerian heritage, right? And that's, that's, you know, that's very much a cultural thing. And when you look at the statistics of the GCSEs, it has benefited that culture in regards to, you know, they achieve quite well in their GCSEs and beyond. Um, but then equally as well, with that same pressure, there also comes, you know, the downside of it is that it's not for, education isn't for everybody. Um, so it's about, and I feel like the community is moving forward and they're understanding that there's a nuance there in regards to not every single one of your children has to accomplish and go through education. There are other routes as of which they can obtain greatness. As a young man growing up in Peckham, South East London, were you different? Did you realise you were different? If you did, when did you realise you were different? Obviously, you grew up, you said, in, in, in a really black area. 
When did you realize you were, I've used, I've heard you use this, this word on your TED talk, the, the dominant culture. When did you realize living in, in, in Britain, were you not the dominant culture? Yeah, so it was going from second, so primary school, secondary school, being Jamaican, I was it. So, you know, at that time, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of in-group fighting in regards to, you know, African versus Caribbean. That was very much the playground discussion and the playground talk at the time. And why is that? For people that don't know, why is that? Uh, I believe it's colonialism. Um, so, you know, typically if you're from a Caribbean background, typically you have an English sounding name. Um, you've been here for a while. Your descendants, uh, like myself, like I explained, had been here for a while. So you, you almost have taken ownership of your area that, you know, your parents probably don't even own a house in. Um, but as a result, that's all you know. So when another group have now come in and they don't have English sounding names, you know, that's something different. Um, and difference wasn't really celebrated then. So as a result, there was this Caribbean African versus conversation in the playground. Um, and unfortunately, I benefited from those conversations in terms of being a Caribbean boy, um, you know, with a slightly lighter hue of skin, with slightly curlier hair, uh, all of these things that, you know, have been birthed from colonialism. It kind of put me forward in regards to being the preference from girls. Um, and then as a result, like I said, it just it was just a weird melting pot of colonialism and, you know, fast forward to, you know, the time that I was living in. But essentially, all of that was my existence. And it, it gave me a big head, if I'm honest. It made me think, you know, that I was great and I was destined for greatness. And like I said, I lived in a, in a bubble, you know, growing up in Peckham, went to school in Peckham, et cetera. And then as soon as I went to university, and I was the only black guy on the course. That for me was like, okay, okay. So everything that I knew, because my college was predominantly black as well. So everything that I knew literally got flipped on that on its head. And it was it was a shock factor to me when I went to university and we had to do group projects. And initially no one wanted to work with me. And I couldn't really put my finger on why they didn't want to work with me because we hadn't been formally introduced yet. You know, they didn't know my work ethic. They didn't know how well I performed. They didn't know my grade. All they knew was just, you know, what you would see from outfacing. I'm a black guy from London. That's all they would know and potentially my name. Um, but they didn't want to work with me. So as a result, and it's so interesting because I remember seeing other black girls on the course and when we were going around and speaking to each other, we said to each other, oh, let's not congregate together. Let's, you know, go out and, you know, speak to other people. Let's not just all work with each other. Let's go out and, you know, try and get into other groups. So we had that conversation and then, you know, we did just that. And then people didn't want to work with us. So then we ended up being in the quote unquote black group anyway. Fast forward after the first assignment, we achieved the highest, we achieved the best. And then everybody wanted to work with us. <laughs> but then by that time, we didn't want to work with them because of what we were faced with initially. So throughout my whole college experience, anytime there was, sorry, my university experience, anytime there was group work, we always ended up congregating together and sticking together and working in the same group. One, because we knew that it worked and we knew each other and how we, we worked. We knew we could rely on each other. But then equally, because we knew that at that time, they didn't want to work with us. Must be quite a shock to the system at quite a, a late age in terms of 18, you're a man. You're not really a man, but you are a man, 18 years old. Like, must be quite a shock. I remember as a kid, I remember I went home and I was I got a flannel 
And I told you, whole white town, white school, wavy thing. And I was rubbing my face with a flannel. My mum come in, my face is rich. What are you doing? I said, I'm trying to rub the brown off. <laughs> and she said, uh, she said, why? Some of the kids at school are being mean to me. Couldn't be poo face. I was little. And she told me off. She said, don't you ever, 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 ever let anybody tell you that you're not beautiful. Look at you. She went, remember she said to me, I was, I was little. She went to me, people, um, it lowest off to a little seaside town. We didn't go abroad. We, we couldn't afford to. But when every summer, people come to lowest off to sit on the beach to look like you, to get brown like you. Don't you ever, 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 ever say anything about the color of your skin. And I went to school the next day, bold as brass. I walked <laughs> like, like, goodness me, a snoop dog into the school. I thought, yeah, people got, people got holiday to look like me, and I loved it. I was very young when I realised I was different. But it wasn't the same for you growing up in a, in a, in a major city. You was more... How, how was it then, growing up in, in, in a big city like London, being a, a black man, a black boy in, in, in the 90s? How was that? Was it difficult? Was it challenging? And what challenges did you face? Uh, so at the time, it wasn't... It wasn't challenging, but I think that's because of my foundation. Um, because like I said, my mum was born in Peckham, so she very much knew the game. She knew the pitfalls. She knew the speed bumps, etc. And she taught me and equipped me for that. Um, but other than that experience in university, my other experience is when I started driving to college at the age of 17, 18. And like I said, I was in my Peugeot 106. It was, I inherited the car. My nan bought me the car for 500 pounds from my uncle. And it had black tints on it. And if I had a choice, even up until this day, any car that I've acquired or got, I never have black tints on there just purely because of the somewhat quote unquote PTSD that I've experienced from inheriting that car that did have tints on it. Um, and like I said, it was a complete banger. It was an Enridge. It had no power steering. It was not a fly car, but it moved. And that's all that mattered. But <laughs> in driving that car, I got stopped so many times. Like it literally was consistent. Um, I would sometimes get stopped twice a day. Um, I would have to carry all my papers with me. Um, and it was just routine. I used to get stopped so much. And at the time, I think I knew the reason, but I wasn't able to kind of verbalize what the reason was, or I didn't know the statistics behind it. And then as an adult, when you start to see the statistics and how dis disproportionate it is, you start to realize, oh, they were literally looking and seeing me. And that was their reason for pulling me over. Despite me achieving a first degree within two years, despite me being top of my class, you know, despite all of these amazing things I had achieved at a really young age, it was just simply because of this. Yeah. The exact same. I got 2010. It was, uh, it was during the World Cup in June 2010. I was on the GB squad. I was on 411 pounds a month on the GB squad. And I thought I cracked it. I thought, like, I'm getting paid to box for Great Britain. Lived in Sheffield all week, come back on a weekend, and I saved up and I bought a shitty little MG, MG, M MGF, a British Racing Green. I got it on eBay. It was 1,200 quid. Up for eBay. I got it for 800 quid. So I bought a port from a traveller and looked at it, and it was falsely advertised. It was way, it was worse in real life than it was on eBay. And I got the train down to Chelmsford to get it. I got stopped that day. 
I got stopped nine times from that day in June to December, and I got rid of it in January because um, I was driving a little sports car convertible. It was a bag of shit, but it's my bag of shit, right? And and that and I was, we'll talk about this later. I hope, but um, in twenty twenty, when the Black Lives Matter movement was happening, I also so. I live in, in, in Brentwood, in Essex now, a very white, affluent area. And also I'm, I'm in Atlanta, a very, very, very black city in the US. So I've, <laughs> I feel like my lives are so opposite, quite opposites. And I, in 2020, I've got a friend of mine, a lovely man, he's late 50s. He said to me, he said, I, wanna, I went to his house, um, social distance in his garden. And he said, obviously during COVID, he said to me, oh, I don't get it. Like, what is all this Black Lives Matter stuff? Nicest man in the world. And his wife, Chris, elbowed him. Kevin, you can't say that. I said, no, no, you can. No, you can say that. That's how we learn. That's how we grow. And I explained to him. And I, and I had to explain to him, my own, obviously my perspective and my interpretation of what it meant to me. He had no idea. I said to him, how many times? And this is the thing I made. It, I said a few things. He didn't really get it. And this is the one that the penny dropped for him. I said, how many times have you been pulled over by the police in your life? 58-year-old white guy from, from Kent and, and Essex in Kent. He said twice. He said, first time, he said, I was really tired and I was driving and I was swerving. He pulled me over. Second time, I ran a red light. I said, so you both times, you've been caught, pulled over for two wrongdoings. Nine times in six months having a, having a green, a shitty little sports car. He said, that, that's racism. Like that, that's what it is. And he was like, oh, fuck, I had no, I had, I had no idea. But of course you wouldn't because you, you wouldn't know, you don't look for the world through the eyes I look at, for the eyes that you look at, you know? So, but I think it's really important to have these conversations because that's how people learn. Um, and anyway, back to you and your, and, and your tremendous life. I'm really fascinated, actually, teaching. Teaching is an unbelievable career, as I said, very inspiring. Can you tell me a couple of things in your eight-year teaching career? Uh some some powerful things that you experienced that you went through. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, some of the... Sorry, I was just thinking about the previous thing that you said, and I'm just going to um, mention that in regards to that, that's why sometimes lived experience and sharing lived experience is really important. And then equally, I feel like that's where me and my work then comes in so when the lived experience isn't enough because chances are there'll be someone that will watch this and be like well I've been you know there'll be English British white and they'll say well I've been stopped plenty of times and that will be their caveat that will be their trump card for that conversation and that's where my work comes in where I will then dig up the statistics in order to show hang on it's actually deeper than just our experience because it's the experience of many people that look like us and it's disproportionate when you look at the statistics so that's one thing that I always make sure that everything that I say is factual and based in statistics and truth because then you can't have any form of caveat to that um but yeah in regards to my my teaching experience um I taught in schools in predominantly southeast London um starting out in Peckham and there was one situation actually that was super, super interesting. Um, and I suppose this is kind of like your, the, the story that you mentioned with your dad in regards to education. I had this uh, boy in my tutor class and um, he was, you know, very boisterous and very loud and cheeky and um, mixed race. And he was just getting loads of bad behavior reports, just every class, but not too bad to where, you know, he's going to get kicked out of school, but just, you know, bad enough to where you've disrupted the lesson and the teacher's a little bit annoyed. 
And I just put, I sat him down because he was in my tutor class or so every day. And I was just like, just please behave. You know, I tried to relate to him and say, just behave, please. Then he said to me, I don't need school. I was like, okay, why is that? And he was like, I'm going to be a BMX racer. And then I was just like, okay, um, well, you know, I was this close to repeating verbiage that I had heard before. <laughs> that, you know, that verbiage of, uh, you know, that's not going to get you anywhere. You need school, focus on school, X, Y, Z. But I stopped myself and I said, I don't want to be that teacher. And I just said to him instead, just, just get through it. You know, just, just, just get through it. And then once you've left, you can go and do what you want to do. Fast forward however many years later, uh, his name's Kai White and he won, I think, silver in the Olympics, uh, just gone for BMX racing. And I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you know what was so crazy is that at that time when he told me he was going to be a, an Olympic BMX, no, Olympic BMX racer or something, whatever he mentioned, I was thinking at that time, because I watched the Olympics quite, especially when like UK or Jamaica had like, you know, champion our athletes. And I think at that time it wasn't an Olympic sport. So I was just like, mm. <laughs> I was like, mm. So to fast forward, then it became an Olympic, an Olympic sport and then he won silver for Britain. I was like, wow, look at that. And I just thought to myself, I haven't spoken to him uh, since then, but I know that one day our paths will cross and I'm going to remind him of that conversation. Um, and I just thought to myself, wow, thank God that I'm not a part of his story where he was like, yeah, there's a teacher that said I wasn't going to amount to anything. <laughs> his name was Kane. Do you know what I mean? And I just thought to myself, as a teacher in the teaching profession, and like I mentioned earlier, power of words and power of words can stick, be it, you know, you're a student in and amongst your peers or you're a teacher, you're an adult and you're speaking to students. It's very careful that you don't mince your words. It's very careful that you watch your words, especially, you know, considering that there's kids with special educational needs within your class. They may take your words quite for facts. Do you know what I mean? So if you say pull up your socks, they may be thinking literally. So I very much in my teaching career, I very much use that example and I hold it dear to my heart that kids can now, now kids can literally do and be anything and school is not the yeah. be all and end all. Yeah, that's amazing, mate. Well, well done for you for having that moment of catching yourself <laughs> yeah. and not being the story that he tells people. Because I've got one of them <laughs> yes. in year seven. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a quiet teacher said to me, you ain't going to be a boxer. Yeah. And she made, a, she, she made a joke. You're too, she said, you're too pretty to be a boxer. You're not going to be a boxer. And I thought, I've had that numerous times. That's the one I remember. That's a kind of a, a jokey one. But I've, I've got them. And it's like, it's so important to, like, you know, young people, when they're young and impressionable, everyone remembers their favorite teacher and will do it to their dying day and their least favorite teacher. So it's so important. And I'm very proud of my wife as well to be in there, a good role model, somebody to lift somebody up, somebody to, there's a quote, and I'm going to butcher it now, but never underestimate the belief that somebody else has in you, has on you, the world that can do for yourself. And I love that because sometimes we all, we all struggle. Even the most confident of people like lack belief now and then, and about other people's beliefs. So the fact that you didn't tear him down then is unbelievable. Mate, what's his name? Kai, you said. Kai White, yeah. 
Kyle, I'm going to get Kyle on the podcast. I'm going to get, well, get on the podcast. Get him on, get him on. Because wow. wow. since then he's gone on to, you know, do some TV bits. And, you know, I've been watching from afar. And, you know, he trained in Peckham, um, in the Peckham BMX uh, racing track. And that was pioneered by a black man. So there's a very interesting story there. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing, mate. So COVID F2. 2020 had changed all our lives. We were all stuck in on silly apps and <laughs> silly family Zoom quizzes on a Friday <laughs> <Yeah>. night. <laughs> it's, but for you, COVID literally changed your life. Yeah, yeah. Like, changed your life. Mm. Can you explain about that, please? Yeah, sure. COVID, for me, there was a silver, a, silver lining, a silver lining in it. And that silver lining was the fact that it just simply gave me more time at home. Um, and, you know, as a teacher previously in my profession, you're not online you know, because you don't want your students to find you, you know, there was always, you know, teachers have this mystique that, you know, they don't have a family, they just sleep at school. And if you see them out at the supermarket, students it's react. Weird, yeah, it's yeah. weird. <laughs> they react like they've seen like a monster or a celebrity or just someone that's not oh, supposed look, to be there. That's Miss, that's Miss, Miss, <laughs> Miss, 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 oh, Miss. No, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly that. So, you know, COVID gave me the opportunity to get online. Uh, and, you know, TikTok was something that people were getting onto at the time. And I thought, well, I'm not going to get on there and do some dances. Um, and it, obviously, uh, George Floyd had happened in 2020. And I was seeing a lot of misinformation. So I decided to become like a fake news freedom fighter because one of the conversations there was, oh, why are people in Britain? So why are black people in Britain, you know, protesting? Why are they up in arms? That's in America. That's a guy over there that doesn't relate to the UK. And then, you know, I then was like, hang on a second. So I was just commenting back to people saying, hang on a second. What about Sean Rigg in 2008 slash 2009 outside Brixton Police Station? He was, um, had a knee placed on him and died after 13 to 14 minutes, 13 to 14 minutes um, in a very similar circumstances, very similar circumstances to George Floyd. And then people was like, oh, and it was just like, yeah, but a lot of people don't know that because it didn't get the same hype but that doesn't mean that it hasn't happened in Britain because Sean Rigg is an example. And that was before George Floyd. So, you know, I was commenting and obviously letting people know that, you know, it's this situation isn't just unique to America. This has happened here too in Britain. And then I started to, I gave myself a challenge. I was like, okay, for Black History Month, which is in October, and in the year was 2020, I was like, I'm going to post a video every single day focusing on UK black history because clearly people aren't aware of, you know, some of this stuff that's happened on our own island in our country. Um, and after that, I just saw it started to pick up really quickly because I was just doing it just almost like a passion project. I wasn't doing it thinking it was going to change my life. It was going to enable me to quit my full-time job. It was going to enable me to live where I live now. I, you know, I was just thinking... I'm, it's just a passion project. I have all this information in my mind and I just want to get it out there. Um, and very quickly, the ball started getting rolling. Um, and after that, so like I said, I posted every single day. So it's like 30 videos throughout the month of October, 31 videos. And then after that, I kept posting throughout the year and I posted two videos a week. So throughout the year, I posted 150 videos. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't get any... 
for a whole year, I didn't get any traction in terms of like any brand deals or any companies wanting to work with me or anything of that nature. But my, I could see that my followers were growing quite rapidly. Um, and then it was August of 2021. I got an email asking me, little old me, to be on the Notting Hill Carnival opening panel to discuss the history of Notting Hill Carnival. And I was just like, because my grandma... Um, on my dad's side, on my paternal side, she's Chinese Jamaican. And she had a shop on All Saints Road. And All Saints Road is where the group All Saints, you know, never, ever, ever, ever. Yeah. That's where they got their name from. But my grandma had a Jamaican restaurant on that road for years. And she was like really well known in the community. So for me, Notting Hill Carnival has always been a part of my culture because my dad's family are from West London. So to be called to be on that panel, I was like, this is such a big deal. And there was a bit of money to attach to it. It wasn't much. It was like 200 quid. But I was like, whoa, I'm getting paid to talk. So, <laughs> so I went, I did the panel. I mentioned my gran. And then the director of Notting Hill Carnival at the time was like, that's your gran. He was just like, you know, at the end of the day when, you know, she, the food that hadn't sold, she would pack it up for the community and the kids like myself, who our families had troubles meeting ends and all that kind of stuff. She would pack up the food at the end and just dish it out to us. And he said, you know, we lived off that. And, you know, essentially, although my grand isn't here anymore, he was like, you know, she's she was a legend in the in the community. And I just thought to myself, wow, I didn't know that. I always knew that she had a shop and obviously we had customers, et cetera, but I never knew that she was giving food out essentially. So when I got that Notting Hill panel, I was just, I felt like I'd made it. I was just like, wow, like she would be so proud. And then from there, the next big opportunity was TikTok DM'd me on Instagram. And I thought, this must be fake. Why is TikTok DMing me on Instagram? But I had the tick and everything. And I was like, what's this? So I was like, okay, let's have like a call or whatever. No, first I ignored it. I ignored it at first because I was like, that's not real. Why would, why would TikTok DM me on Instagram? That's not real. So I ignored it. Then they followed up. Then I was like, okay, I entertained it. Then it was like, yeah, we want to put you on our billboards for Black History Month. And I was like, what? And it was like, yeah, you know, these billboards are going to be up and down the country all the way from, you know, we'll have one in Peckham and we'll have some in Scotland and Birmingham and all these different areas. And I was like, this is crazy. And then Black History Month 2021, my life was never the same again. Once that billboard went up, um, things rapidly changed and speaking engagements and TED Talks and book deals and things of that nature. My life has completely changed and it's gone in a direction I never thought it would do. So I watched your videos last night. I've been traveling a lot, back and forth to the UK and the US, and I'm so tired. And last night I said, I'm going to go to bed at 10, 8, 10 p.m. tonight. Half past one on your on my phone, <laughs> watching your videos, watching this person and that person, that person. They're so engaging. They're so entertaining, so informative. It's, wow, man, I'm so unbelievably impressed by your success. Thank you, thank you. So why? Why? Why be a, a, a cultural commentator? Why promote a black history? There, before 2020, there wasn't an appetite for it. Let's be honest. Um, and even now, the appetite is starting to wane. But it's still so important. And there's almost like this discourse that it's just important for people like me and people like you, people like ourselves, people that look like us. But it actually goes beyond that. And I challenge people because for me, it's not just black history. It includes Britain as well. It's almost like global history. 
And in regards to our young people, if we take the white working class English lad, it's imperative for him to know the history of the world in order for him to compete on a global scale. And that's just factual. It's not, you know, and I say that to say that it's not just for us. It's within everybody's favour within Britain to be best informed. Because the last thing that you want is to be informed by fake news. And then equally, the last thing that you want is to go elsewhere and then have a rude awakening. Because essentially there's emerging economies all around the world and there's so much opportunity out there now. And we want our young people to go and grab that opportunity with both hands. But if they're not informed and educated, then they're going to be missing out on those opportunities. Who or what inspired you? Uh, I had a Pan-African upbringing. And what I mean by that is um, we had a Rastafarian influence growing up. So in its simplistic form, think Bob Marley. In the more complex form, think of Marcus Garvey and some of these black revolutionaries within Jamaica. And at the time, you know, when you're young, you're just like, oh, that's just so annoying. Why are these people talking and talking about all these different philosophies and things of that nature? Why do we not need to, why, why not eat dairy products? Why can't we eat cheese? Why can't we have milk? Why can't we eat pork? You know, all these kind of things that's thrusted upon you as a child. And then fast forward, because we had like an ITEL diet growing up, which essentially is a modern day vegan diet. Um... And then fast forward and see that there's like a vegan diet and, you know, there's validity in it. And, you know, whether it's health benefits, whether it's world benefits, however you kind of see it, there's some form of benefit in it. But, you know, that was being preached and spoken to me from very early on. So I was always that kind of weird kid who when these conversations about race and laughing at people's surnames and all this kind of stuff was going on, that was never my reality because I was always taught that blackness was blackness was myself but then also as well blackness was for us it was I'm trying to find the words to put it that doesn't alienate others but essentially blackness for us was it it blackness for us you hear the term like black is beautiful and that's probably something that, that people have heard and that may alienate some people. But the reason why it's so important to champion statements like that is because blackness hasn't always been held as the apex of beauty. So as a result, to combat that, you need certain words and certain language once again. And that language when I was young was black is beautiful. Why does that alienate people? Why do people hear that? Why do some people hear that? And I'll, I'll go a whole topic on this if we have time to talk about it. Why does somebody hear that and get angry? I don't understand. Mm. I've got in trouble in the past by, I did a tweet a, a couple of years ago when England did the World Cup, uh, a black excellence tweet. Rashford, Saka scored and, and I left my phone alone for a few hours, came back, my phone blew up. And I had no idea everyone got so triggered by it. People are either staunchly defending what I said or so against calling me every name under the sun, racist this, racist that. And I, I can't understand why, and in that, in that incident, me, champion, me championing 
an often marginalised um, community made some people so angry. Me supporting young black lads that worked hard and are excellent. They're people who want to be like a Bakayo Saka or Marcus Rashford, what they've done for their, for their race and their community. Um, especially a year after Saka, a 17-year-old boy, boy, 17-year-old kid, missed a penalty in the European Cup final and got every name under the sun shouted at him. By, uh, why, why do people get triggered at terms like black is beautiful, black excellence? Yeah, it's, it's, for me, it's always context. So if people just see that black is excellent without any form of context or without looking into the history, they'll be offended. And that's likely because they've been misinformed because they don't have the history. In the work that I do, people are always like, oh, forget about history. Why are you looking back? We don't need the history. History is essentially the roots for me. And then obviously we have the tree and then we have the fruits. So, you know, you saying black excellence, that isn't the root, that's the fruit. Uh-huh. That's uh-huh. the end product. Mm. That's you saying it because of what has happened. You know, there's roots and the roots are quite dark and the tree has been sprouted, but then we can turn it around and we can still have something fruitful. But in order to have something fruitful, we need to have positivity spoken because this group like you mentioned, has been marginalised. Like you said, the year prior, these young men were being, you know, taunted online. It was some of the worst racist abuse Twitter has ever seen. So you then saying black excellence, it's almost like a caveat to that. But then I can understand if you just took that, that one tweet and didn't put it into context, you would say, well, what, why, why not hashtag white excellence? And... The answer to that is because why, unfortunately, due to the past 400 years that we all know and we've all been taught in school, that's the standard. So you don't need to say it because it's already perpetuated. So as a result, when we say black is excellent, we're just trying to get it back up to the same level where we can no longer talk about race. But we need to remember that, like everyone always mentions, you know, the human race, that the idea of race is a social construct. Think about that. If it's a social construct and the guy created it and he created it with black people being at the bottom, naturally we need to talk about race and almost flip it on its head, just momentarily, not for too long, but just to make sure that black people feel validated because they were historically at the bottom for so many years. Get emotional. <laughs> I'm, actually, I'm actually getting emotional. Um, well, you articulate that in such a nice way. Um, I don't understand how anybody can listen to you talking and not understand if they're willing to understand, if they want to learn. A couple of years ago, Kevin, my neighbour, said to me, please, please tell me, please, I want to learn. My wife's, uh, my father-in-law, before he passed away, he was like, he was, how can he be better? How can he learn? Yeah, yeah. People do want to learn, yeah, you know, yeah, generally yeah, speaking. Yeah, yeah. You get, obviously, you get the some bigots that don't, and they are what they are. But listen to you, well, from in future, I'm just going to say, that's the guy, here's the link, listen, <laughs> listen to him. Because, well, thank you, thank you. Who and what inspires you to metaphorically get back up Every single time you do receive abuse, you do receive hatred, you do receive nastiness, be it comments and DMs and this, which no doubt you must get because 
I went through a few couple, a few years where I'd post similar to you actually, not every single day, but I'd post often during Black History Month some often forgotten about about black historical figures from the UK. Um, very similar to what you were doing, but not as as, as consistent. Um, and I got I got so a bit of hate for doing it from people that I wouldn't expect it from as well. So I know what you do. You must get so much abuse. How how do you deal with that? Uh, I think the thing that makes me recover from... I'm not going to lie and act like it doesn't affect me. And sometimes I do reply. And then when I do reply and they come back with their comment, I realise that it's not to be educated. It's not to be informed. It's just, you know, it's, it's essentially trolling. Um, so at that point, you know, they're just, just a fucking dick, basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so I'll, I'll say, I'm way more articulate than me. I'll say, they're just a fucking piece of shit. That's what that's what it is. And so I've been learning to exercise the block button a lot more, especially when I can see it coming. Uh, rather than entertaining it, I just block. Um, but what inspires me to get back up is the positivity, because there is a lot of positive comments, and equally. When I do speak in person, I've never had a bad comment in person. So it's very important to stay grounded it's in funny, the reality. It? Yeah, it's, in the reality. It's funny, it's funny how people get very brave. So I guarantee whenever you've spoken, you've gone somewhere and they've gone, fucking this guy. And they don't listen to you and they're thinking in their head, but don't say it in their <laughs> mouth. They say it on their fingers. But yeah, hopefully I'm sure you, you, you go there and you change people's mindsets. And then and their perspective and their outlook. And that's the thing I mentioned, I asked you a moment ago, like why do people get triggered? Because by elevating one, you're not dragging down the other. <laughs> the other ones, the, I don't know what people are scared of or what they're afraid of. <laughs> it just, it's, it's so strange. It really it baffles me. It really baffles me. But yeah, I'm so glad you do keep getting back up because what you do, the energy that you put into the world, mate, is 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 appreciated by me wholeheartedly. Almost had me in tears a moment ago. <laughs> uh, it was, um, yeah, it's just it's just great. Can I can we play a little game? I want to ask you some questions, and I want to be devil's advocate, okay? And I want to be that very. And again, I don't say this in a negative way. I want to be that very white person from a very middle class or working class background that's never been racially abused and don't get it. I want to try to like ask some some questions. How about that? Um, yeah, I don't get it. Racism, I don't get it. I don't get it. Why are you so bothered about it? It happened years and years ago. Like, why? What's the point? Yeah, so what I would say to that is... Um, what I would say to that is exactly your point. The fact that it's... The thing that I would say about racism, which is really interesting, is that it evolves. And this is why we need to keep learning about it, because it involves it evolves. So, for example, you may have the impression that racism doesn't exist within the UK. However, if you look at CVs, for example, so when you're applying for a job, if you have a Nigerian sounding surname, you're 80% more likely not to get that job just purely based on your name. So if you have exactly the same credentials as John Smith and then you have the name Adamola Adabihi, a Nigerian name or a Nigerian sounding name, 
You've got the exact same credentials. You're from the same place, etc. By the way, this is a study done by one of the most prestigious universities in the country. They sent out over a thousand applications. The only thing that they changed was the name. They didn't change nothing else. And what they found is that if you have a Nigerian sounding surname, you are 80% more likely not to get that job. So it's not a matter of if racism exists or if it doesn't. It's statistic, statistical. It does exist and it affects people's job opportunities, despite Nigerian kids performing, outperforming white English kids and African Caribbean kids who have English sounding names, but yet they won't get the job just purely based on their names, regardless of how much attainment, regardless of their, uh, their grades, they won't get that job just purely based on the fact that if they have a Nigerian sounding name. Wow. So what are we going to do? Are we going to ignore that or are we going to educate that so that when you are in that position and you do get that CV through, you're looking at the person's credentials, you're looking at their work ethic rather than looking just solely at their name? Because chances are you're missing out on a fantastic candidate. So let's say the person who is looking at the resume and the sudden job, let's say they're 50 years old and whether they're like overly or, or covertly racist, how do you change that person's mindset if they're, if they're 50 years old, quite stuck in their ways? How do you go in there and change it? And that's where the information comes in because it's about understanding how much Nigerian people as a culture have contributed to the country. Once you start to understand that, you start to understand, hang in a second, that's not a liability, that's an asset. What are some of the reasons why me being a 50-year-old white man who would rather give the job to John Smith rather than a Cesar or Gogo? Mm -hmm. um, why? What is the prejudice? What, what, you know, if the resume is exactly the same, what is it? Yeah, it's just purely, I think a lot, some of it comes down to um, perhaps being afraid. It may be laziness. Uh, there's a number of different reasons. It may be fear of the unfamiliar. Um, but we cannot let that stop us from competing in the global village. And I mentioned that earlier, the idea that, you know, the world is fast moving. We're now in the information era. So as a result, you know, there's some amazing emerging economies. And are we going to partake or are we going to reject? If we choose to reject, then our candidates will go elsewhere. So, for example, teaching profession, once again, the year just gone, over 40,000 teachers left the profession. That's 9% of the workforce. 15,000 teachers went to Dubai. So, Britain, what are we doing here? Because we're approaching a crisis. But yeah, if we don't educate ourselves to realize that we're now completing with the, with the globe. You know, before, back in the day, it was very much like, oh, I want to go to America or I want to go to Britain. That's no longer the case. There's now some other emerging markets that people now want to go to. So we need to make sure that as British people, we're prepared for that. Otherwise, we're going to have these situations where we're like, oh, wait, hang on a second. We've got certain sectors that no longer have people working in those sectors because of racist policies that we put in place or because we didn't look after who we had. So the fact that we've lost over 40,000 teachers, which is the highest percentage since, since you know, they've started recording since 2011, that's cause for concern. We can't just be singing, I believe our children are our future, but yet not invest in the children. We need to invest in the teachers. We need to pay them what they're worth. We need to sort out our behavior problems. Otherwise, our teachers are going to up and leave and go to Dubai. What about the person that says, hang on, look, every TV presenter is black now, Asian, 
this, that. It's actually harder now for a white man to get by than a black person. In regards to TV advertisements, once again, it's context, because if you go back 10 years ago, black people in commercials were underrepresented. So now Black Lives Matter has happened and we're now slightly overrepresented in some circumstances. And I say some circumstances because that study, you need to be very careful because although it says that black people are overrepresented on British TV, that includes the commercials for the sandals holiday where you see the white couple holiday in Barbados where there's a black butler carrying a tray and serving white people. That black person in that advert carrying the tray would count as a part of overrepresentation. So it's not just all black people are on TV having, you know, in the most groundbreaking roles that are changing their lives. It could literally be the waiter. So it's not just the fact that black people are being overrepresented and it's glorious. No, the graft is still having to be put in. Yeah. Can you... I've got a few questions here. We can just rattle through. I'm, I'm really enjoying this talk. I could talk to you forever, <laughs> as I mentioned you earlier. Um, some significant events and milestones in the struggle for racial equality in Britain. Yeah, like we all know about Rosa Parks. We all know about Muhammad Ali. It's a big one in America. And oftentimes you mentioned earlier about the, the British ones that I didn't know about. It was a Sean, Sean Biggs. Uh, Sean, Sean Riggs, yeah, Sean Riggs. Sean Riggs. Yeah, I, yeah. I wasn't aware of that. And I'm, 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 I'm ashamed that I wasn't aware of that. Um, obviously, George Floyd, everyone knows about George Floyd. So some, some significant events in, 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 in the UK, the, the struggles for racial equality. Can you just mention a few that we should know about that we don't. Yeah, sure. So you mentioned Rosa Parks. Equally like the George Floyd example, you know, people just think, oh, that's just separate. That's just over there. But I would encourage people to check out the Bristol boycotts, bus boycotts that was happening over here. Uh, one of the gentlemen that was just involved in that just recently passed away. So that goes to show you that it wasn't that long ago. Uh, equally, it was a similar circumstance, not exactly the same, but similar where, you know, uh, black people uh, were being marginalized. Um, they weren't being employed for certain jobs. There was a color bar. Um, and once again, that's something that not a lot of people are aware of, that within Britain, there was an unofficial colour bar. So some places were operating a colour bar, some places were not. Um, and as a result, the Race Relation Act had to be passed within Britain, which made it illegal for any place to have a colour bar. But that was pioneered by a lot of the Windrush generation. So definitely look at Bristol bus boycotts. And then equally, there's a guy called Asquith Xavier. Um, and he broke the colour bar at Youth Sensation, where essentially they had their own law passed where you know black people couldn't work on the trains but as Griffith Xavier fought he brought it to the highest degree that he could to ensure that black people could work at Euston Station so next time you're at Euston Station look and walk around and look for his black because he's the person that has made it so that black people can work on the trains within Britain so those are just a few people that people should be aware of and you've done a video on him as well, haven't you? I on, have, on yeah, yeah, yeah. So I really enjoyed that one yesterday. So can you, can you name some key challenges faced by black communities in Britain during not just time periods in the past, but now? What are some key challenges? And these are for people that don't have it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to promote this podcast as a, as a place where people can come and learn, people that will actually want to learn. Yes, yes, yes. Um, not once, not, you and I, not once in the last hour, have we tore down a a race or a culture. This is just celebrating or trying to even promote the the black black history. Um but what struggles have some people gone through, communities gone through that say some white people would never know about it? 
Yeah, sure. That's a that's a really good question because once again, the idea that racism and black history can almost seem like it's in the past, but like I was saying earlier, it very much informs the present. Um, and we need to learn from that history in order to make sure that we make the right decisions in the present and the future. So one of the current struggles is uh, UK black maternity. Um, and what I mean by that is that a lot of people are unaware that at the moment, if you're a black woman within the UK, you're four to five times more likely to pass away during maternity than your white counterparts, which is insane. And this recently... Okay, not sure. just, just, just to say that again, because like I need this... That's something you've got to repeat to actually listen. If you listen to the severity of that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's shocking that if you are a black woman within the UK, you are four to five times more likely to pass away during maternity and than your white counterparts. And then you can look at that and think, oh, perhaps that's just, you know, an, anom an anomaly. Perhaps it's just unique to black women. But literally what's so interesting is that bearing in mind that race is a social construct, black people are at the bottom, Asian, etc., all the way up to white, is that if you follow the racial construct that has been created, black women are four to five times more likely, Asian women are three times more likely, mixed women are two times more likely, and then you've got white women being the standard. So it literally follows the racial hierarchy. And that was informed by history. So it's not that, you know, places are overtly racist. You know, they're not turning away black pregnant women at the doors of the hospital. However, there's underlying... Anymore. anymore <laughs> there's underlying historic tones that are still prevalent to this day. Everyone's heard of the Windrush generation. And obviously this is very personal to you and a lot of people our age. Um, e explain what it is for those that have heard of it but don't really understand what it is and why and what the, wind, the Windrush scandal was, is. Yeah, sure. Uh, so Windrush generation is essentially uh, the first is the wave of Caribbean people, migrants uh, that came to the UK for work. Uh, they docked at Tilbury uh, in Essex and, you know, there's some fantastic iconic images of the Windrush ship. That Windrush ship, ship then came, then became synonymous with that group of people, Caribbean people that came here in the 50s slash 60s. Um, but it's also important to know that on that ship, it wasn't just black people. There were Polish people on that ship as well. Um, and different ethnicities. And it wasn't just Jamaican, there were Trinidadians and other people, etc. And essentially, as soon as these people landed, you know, they were going to all their different jobs that they already had configured out. Um, so, for example, a lot of people don't know this, but uh, the NHS and uh, the Windrush SIP happened in the same year. So when the NHS was birthed, um, the Windrush SIP had literally landed two weeks before and a lot of the women on that ship went straight to go and work for the NHS because Britain essentially created this amazing resource that we have up until today. However, it was extremely understaffed and they were struggling uh, to fill a lot of these positions. And as a result, what they did is they sent um, some British nurses, some senior nurses to uh, the Caribbean to basically poach and promote you know, the NHS and working in Britain. And then as a result, these people were invited over and started to work in our NHS. And that's why you hear the verbiage of, you know, the Windrush generation or Caribbean people, you know, 
essentially helped uh, the NHS to survive um, because without the labour, it wouldn't survive. And even up until today, we're very much aware that the labour for the NHS is very diverse. Um, and once again, we owe a lot to people around the world for keeping that resource going. Uh, so the Windrush generation, uh, for me, are are the icons of Britain. I feel like they're a shining jewel of Britain. And I think that there's something that we should all be extremely proud of, regardless if, you know, we're Caribbean or not. Fast forward, because you would assume that that would be the case, you know, when I speak about people like Asquith Xavier, who broke the colour bar and, you know, these nurses that help prop up the NHS, just to kind of put into context, the NHS at the time, they put out a job application and they um, needed 700 people for this particular job that they put forward. And when they got responses back, the responses were in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. So, you know, there was a huge gap and people weren't going for these jobs. And essentially, this is where a lot of the Commonwealth countries came into play and came over and filled a lot of these roles. So fast forward, you would assume that these people would be protected. You assume that they would be loved. You would assume that they would get the due treatment. Um, but then fast forward to the Windrush scandal, which I personally feel in terms of contemporary history, i.e. the past five years, is one of our more darker moments as a country. Um, seeing and hearing and knowing that there's people who are due compensation because of what has happened to them. Um, and just to go into a little bit of what, what has happened to them, a lot of, a lot of the Windrush generation uh, came over on papers. They were invited. But as a result, a lot of these papers got lost in translation. Um, and as a result, these people, you know, are paperless. Um, and that's both from their side and the government side. These papers were destroyed somehow. Um, and as a result, you've got a large community of people that have never even travelled or been on holiday. They've just remained in Britain and just worked so hard for their families all the way up until retirement age. Um, so you would think, like I said, once again, that these people would be protected. But then there was legislation passed um, and this fear of migrants and the importance of getting immigrants out. Sorry, fear of immigrants, sorry, and getting immigrants out. And as a re result, these people who had been here all their lives, some people literally born here, they know no other place, um, worked here all their lives, inputted into, the, into our um, government system financially, raised their kids here, um, have homes here. Um, some people even married to, you know, English white people. All of a sudden, legislation changed and these people are now at risk. And some people have been wrongly detained or deported. Um, and this is people who are big, big age. Um, you know, there's one circumstance, there's one situation of a beekeeper in Liverpool. And, you know, he's a community guy and he looks after all the bees and he's a, a dread guy, a ruster guy. And he was, you know, up in the trees and, you know, doing all these amazing things and teaching young school kids and were, was very fit and active. Netflix made a little documentary about him. And once he was wrongly detained, his family were obviously scrambling for papers and all that kind of stuff. And eventually he was freed. But when he was freed, he was no longer the same because he was confined. He was treated as a second class citizen. He was, you know, a high level of stress. And as a result, he came out with a walking stick and a limp. 
And when you think about that, he before he went in, he was the guy that was on the ladder in the trees, looking after the bees in Liverpool and teaching the young school kids. And now he's a frail gentleman that needs a walking stick to help him walk. So for me, it's very much a dark time in Britain where for me, it's a human rights issue. And it needs to be rectified as soon as possible. But there's powers that be that are yet to compensate people. And it almost feels as if they're waiting for these people to pass away before they compensate them. I don't understand. Why? All the money they waste on shit. All the money that the government wastes on fucking shit. Why not give these people that deserve it what they deserve? I think part of it is admitting that they were wrong. Um, and although they have admitted that they were wrong in some circumstances, and of course some people have been granted their papers, etc., this case by case, it's so complicated. And I feel like they simply don't have the resources and the know-how to deal with something like this. Last few questions, mate. I could talk to you, as I said, I could learn. I'm, I'm learning so much just talking to you now. And I'm, as I mentioned earlier, this isn't a job to me. I don't get paid. I just enjoy putting good into the world. And you're talking so much sense, uh, openly, honestly. And yeah, I feel like a lot of good is going into the world each, each, each time you open your mouth. Um, was Winston Churchill racist? Hey, hey, hey. Uh, and, and, and Horatio Nelsons and people that... I come from East Anglia, um, you know, uh, Norfolk, those Nelsons County, Horatio Nelson, the great... Green naval officer, um, but I was involved in the slave trade. And it's like, again, playing devil's advocate, Winston Churchill, I grew up watching, I, I'm a, I like history. I like how strong Britain has been in the past in terms of how defined we were in World War One and II. Um, so I've grown up thinking Winston Churchill is a hero. A legend, Britain's greatest ever Britain. But then you dig a little bit deeper, and that's obviously what I've been like, known to believe. I do my own research and look over something like, oh, mm. here's a guy that I admire immensely, and I, I say some of his quotes on a daily basis. But also, this happened, and that happened. So for those that are struggling to want to believe certain things, what is a, how how do oh, I'll ask you for myself? How do I feel about someone like Winston Churchill? That on one hand I love his so many things, his his, his wartime um, presidency and the premiership, but some of the things I can't get my head round. What I would say in regards to Winston Churchill is: Has he said problematic things? Yes. Um. Is it problematic to try and tear down his statue? Yes. Do I believe that his statue should be torn down? No. Do I believe that the history in its entirety should be told? Yes. I think that there's very much nuances in these conversations and I think that context is extremely important. Um, and, you know, a lot of our leaders um, from many walks and races, for example. So Gandhi, for example, he said some problematic things as well. And he didn't want to be referred to as as black and, and, you know, made some certain comments as well. So, and then fast forward to the civil rights movement and people like Malcolm X once again said some problematic things as well. But context is very important, the context of which they were saying it in. 
Um, and were they right in saying it? One thing that I always do in my mind is I make sure that I'm not judging them with a 21st century mind in 2023. I always make sure that I try my best, and this is where history is important, to put into context what they were going through at that time. Uh-huh. Um, so Malcolm X, for example, what he was going through at the time, civil rights movement and, you know, a whole manner of things. And Gandhi, what he was going through at the time in South Africa, which, of course, has its own problems. Of course, you wouldn't want to be associated with the most marginalized group. Of course, you'd be like, no, I'm not there. I'm here. So, you know, it's very important to put context and speak the whole history. Um, and equally, one thing that I would say is, you know, where Winston Churchill statue is, for example, there's a plaque dedicated to Ignatius Sancho on the very same road. And he's one of the first black people to vote in Britain. And he owned a shop that's literally right next to um, 10 Downing Street. So I just always, or even, you know, Trafalgar Square with Nelson, for example, Nelson's column. If you look on that plaque, you would see that there's a black soldier on there called George Ryan. And I always just take the opportunity to say to people, you know, look at the black history that's there and get the full picture um, and know that these conversations are nuanced and not everyone's going to agree with you. Some people will disagree. Some people will agree. But ultimately tell the whole story, the good, the bad and the ugly. I think for the longest time, Britain has been guilty of just telling the good, um, but they need to come to terms with telling the good, the bad and the ugly. Does that mean that we can't celebrate the heroes for what they did? No, of course we can celebrate the heroes for what we did, what they did, but we also need to know that they were human. That was a wonderful answer to a potential very tricky question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, yeah. And I, and I take my hat off to you, and I think that's fantastic. I think I'm very proud of being British. I'm very proud. I live in America now, and I'm very proud. I, I'm wearing my Nigerian headband, but I often wear my my, my, my Union Jack one. I still got two or three. Love that. And I love Britain. I love being British. Um, I love being British in spite of our our difficult and often bloody past, which I don't agree, but I like how, to a degree, we're trying to make amends for that. Um, still a lot to be done, so a lot to be done, of course. Um, but I love I love my country anyway. I'm not going to not love, love Britain. I'm not going to not be in awe of Churchill and the things that he did. The good thing is, just like you said, about kind of gathering the whole picture and making... A judgment call with all the information and when you're only taught one part of history be it school or whatever you can't make a an informed decision yeah yeah what you do on your channels tiktok instagram youtube what you do you let everyone know the other side not to look bad at this side just give everyone an informed understanding of what's actually happened and what's still going on? And for that, mate, honestly, you are an absolute legend and I've thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I hope to have you on the podcast again and talk about more stuff and next time, hopefully, we'll talk about something more specific and, and focus on that. But I've learned a lot in the last hour and a half or so. Um, yeah, this is this has been one of my favourite talks because you've been so eloquent so articulate, so honest, so personable, so charismatic. It's been it's been great. Thank you so much. Thank you, um, bro. And thank you for sharing. Likewise, thank you for sharing and thank you for creating this platform and having me on. Um, your audience, you know, they're not they wouldn't necessarily come across someone 
from my background with, you know, my expertise. So thank you for giving me the platform to share. Before we go, I want everyone listening to this to, to follow you and, um, and research you and just follow the great work that you're doing. So where can they follow you? Yeah, sure. So I'm primarily on Instagram and TikTok um, and it's Kane, K-A-Y-N-E and then Kawasaki as in the bike brand. <laughs> uh, so yeah, follow me um, for more content and for more uplifting, informative uh, history content. Wow. Wow. Fantastic conversation, Kane. Thank you so much, mate, for coming onto the podcast and sharing your wisdom. I think you do an amazing job what you do by educating so many people when you do your podcast and on your, on your social media. Two things stood out for me in that podcast. Firstly, when he said, if you have a Nigerian sounding last name, you're 80% less likely to get a job than somebody with a white sounding last name. That is ridiculous to me. That's, it's, it's crazy. That's, that just, it boggles my mind. But this one's really disgusting. If you are, you're four to five times more likely to die in, in, in maternity, if you're a female, obviously. If you're black, then you are if you are white. Now, that is what racism is right now. In the 21st century, if you're a black woman, four to five times more likely to die giving birth than a white counterpart that that to me is crazy and that needs to be looked at and something has to be done because that is just absolutely shocking and disgusting so with that being said if you enjoyed this podcast then please share this to people that you think is going to like it can learn something from it like share subscribe all that fun stuff but the getting back up podcast rolls on week after week after week and we go from education so next week you go to adventure next week i'll get ash dykes on the podcast ash dykes is a welsh explorer adventurer extreme athlete he's an absolute legend so charming so funny so kind and i couldn't believe that ash like the guy you're gonna see next week and here next week has done all these amazing 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 crazy crazy things i promise you it's unbelievably inspiring so tune in next week and remember in life, always stay in the fight. And if you get knocked down, always get back up. See you next week. <laughs>